Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. I'm here today with native New Yorker Piper Weiss, um, who's the author of the newly released and super popular book called You All Grow Up and Leave Me, a memoir of teenage obsession. A former editor at Yahoo, Hello Giggles, and the New York Daily News, Piper is now writing full-time. She also wrote a book about how women basically discover their moms are not just moms called My Mom's Style Icon. She currently lives in Brooklyn. So welcome, Piper. Thank you so much for having me, Zibby. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Just to get started, can you give listeners a little synopsis of what this book is about? Sure. Um, the book is about uh, kind of a coming-of-age memoir about growing up in 90s Manhattan uh, on the Upper East Side and also a researched and reported uh, narrative about a tennis coach that I had at the time who turned out to be a child stalker. Um, and the child stalker's name was Gary Walensky. That's right. Um, at the beginning of the book, you have a scene with your poet ex-boyfriend, who you described so in such a great way, uh, when you're attempting to write about a statue together, and then you decide that's a total waste of time, and instead you want to write a book about your experience with Gary Walensky. Can you tell me more about how you came up with the idea in that moment, and then what happened to take that decision and, and have it become this book? Um, I think, you know, I think I, at the time I... My my poet boyfriend, uh, who's amazing and, by the way, has, like, read many drafts of this book and has been incredibly supportive, I, I really looked up to him. He was older than me. He was the best writer in college. He remains one of the finest writers I know. And... And I kind of wanted to just do whatever he wanted to. If he wanted to write a project with me, I would do whatever he wanted. And so I think we kind of concocted this idea that involved kind of researching a crime that had happened on our campus. And talking about this campus crime triggered the memory of Gary Walensky and made me realize that I, you know, I was like, is that something I dreamed? Or did that really happen? Did I know this guy? And I started to just kind of unravel all these memories that were like in a knot in the back of my brain and uh, and I think it was an important moment I guess on like a personal level because I realized that I wanted to pursue a story on my own without without him you know and that maybe I could maybe I had the you know I had something to say on my own that didn't revolve around someone else, a male in particular, who, you know, I looked up to. Um, well, I'm so glad you decided to do it. It was, I mean, you're truly an amazing writer. Um, the analogies you use are brilliant. You help the reader think about things in, like, a whole new way. Um, an example of your writing that I loved is when you were describing uh, the scene with Gary in the car. Um, he had started by saying, don't go just yet, stay here with me for a minute. And he tells you, you know, I'm depressed. Um, and I just want to read how you just 
discuss your depression, you say, me too. I say, sometimes I imagine my skull is an eggshell with hairline fractures. A premature and pulpy creature taps its beak from inside. This is what it feels like to be breaking from within, waiting for the transparent coil of bones, sickly alive and mewing to slip out, the kind of thing you'd step on to put it out of its misery. I want to explain this feeling to Gary and tell him about dangling my feet outside my bedroom window, seven floors up, how I have already written a note, but I don't dare disrupt this moment that belongs to him. I mean, that is amazing. It's like you're in every moment, and I I only took a tiny thing, but anyway. Um, How did you learn to write like this? Did you take classes? Were you always just a gifted writer? Oh, God. Well, first of all, it was just like... I, that sounded so much better coming from you <laughs> than I, I just like, please just come now and read to me because yeah, it's, I, I, I liked it better than when I put my eyeballs on it. But, um, no, I, I, I did always take classes. I always wanted to be a poet and, um, <laughs> and um, took like, I took wor- a workshop at the 92nd street. Y when I was in high school, um, that was life-altering, and that's, like, one of these beautiful benefits of growing up in New York City where you have access to these brilliant writers and poets that just teach workshops. Um, So that really opened up my brain, and then I went to college for writing. But I will say that, like, I was never the great writer. Like, I, I never... You know, I did well in school, but nobody was like, come here, like, let's send you to this graduate school. I applied to writing graduate schools for poetry, did not get in anywhere. Um, I, so I, I kind of for like the, for years after graduating college, I, I was thinking that I would give up on writing and just kind of pursue working in editing and you know, just helping other writers write um, and kind of trying to take the idea of me being a writer out of my identity. And, uh, but it kept creeping back in. Um, but yeah, now I'm, I'm almost 40 and this is really like the first piece of writing that's from my heart that I, that I've ever put down on the page for the public. And uh, so... So yeah, I feel like I'm a little bit of a late bloomer and and just finding my voice right now and finding my confidence in it. How do you feel having ex- sort of exposed yourself in this way now that it's out there? Terrified, horrified. <laughs> um, I have been just, I, I've been having like delusions of grandeur and then like profound shame. Um, <laughs> my uh, My boyfriend keeps joking that Whenever we pass people on the street, he's like, they just said your name. They know who you are. And I go, really? And he's like, no, you're not famous. And I'm like, no, you're right. No, I'm the most embarrassing, humiliating person in the world. Of like, I just like vassal of just like, where do I fit in this world? Um, But I think that's also a product of, um, yeah, like putting your your personal story out into the world where you actually think like everyone can see me and now I'm so exposed and they either are going to really like me or they're going to really hate me and want me dead. Um, and it turns out it's somewhere in between where it's just like people are really nice and, you know, and mostly my friends and family members have read the book and some like, you know, young 
women, a lot of young women have been reaching out to me that are writers and, and writers in college and asking for uh, advice. And that's just like the best part of this whole process is to be like, yes, I totally was where you are and, uh, you know, don't freak out and it's going to take some time or it's not going to take some time. Just like be confident and and don't let anyone make you feel inadequate. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's, I, I feel that, I feel like we need to redo this entire answer. Because no, stop that it, was, stop it. <laughs> no. no, you're great. <laughs> that was great. Um, and by the way, it can't just be your friends and family who've read this book. Because every <laughs> Instagram account is like posting pictures of people reading your book. So it's all, I feel as that it's all over the place. So. Um, going back to Gary for a second. Um, I've talked to a number of friends. I also grew up in New York at the exact same time as you, as we were just discussing. And I knew uh, so many people um, who played with Gary were Gary's girls. In fact, I don't even know why I wasn't. But um, anyway, (laughs) Um, so I've talked to a number of these Gary's girls, and none of them knew that this book was coming out. And even now that it's out, they didn't know it was about Gary. So I was wondering why you didn't put his name in the title Uh or um, if there was a reason... If there was a reason behind that. Or did you, t- and that also that none of them were contacted about the book and they were like totally shocked that there was a book. So. Wow. Yeah. You know what? I wish, I wish I, I, I did have, I fanned out as wide as I could to, to, um, former students of Gary Walensky. But it's interesting because, you know, had his crime happened, 10 years later, there would at least be some kind of, like, Facebook group of Gary's girls, people who experienced it, like, sharing their stories. Um, I reached out to every single uh, person that was a student at the time who was quoted in any article um, about him. I posted requests on face, like, open requests on Facebook and Twitter, and then just through channels of um, of people who knew people. I, I knew a lot of brutally women, and I reached out to them. A lot of people didn't want to talk to me, mm-hmm. um, and I really respect and am fine with that. It's a really delicate subject, and everyone has their own experience. Um, so I also didn't want to hyper broadcast it as if it was you know some kind of story that I was owning I mean I think just to speak to why it didn't have his name in the title you know it's because the book ended up turning out to be not as he was he was the kind of um framework for another story for the memoir of my experience as a teenager that I wanted to tell um and I kind of wrapped it around the the story of him um and you know what struck me in researching and kind of going back and and kind of uncovering these memories I had was the fact that I had these fond memories of him as opposed to this horror um and how little I knew um, and how much I needed his approval. So so that was kind of what I wanted to explore. I would have loved to have talked with everyone and anyone. And now more and more people are kind of coming forward and saying, I played with him. Um, but, 
Yeah, the other thing was that the the daughter in the story um, obviously was the first person I reached out to years before I was even planning to write a book. I just was obsessed with this topic, and I wanted to talk to her, and um, and she wasn't comfortable with it, rightly so. And um, I kept reaching out until she was just kind of just quiet, went a little quiet, and I realized that you know, that it's not my place to push. It's not my place to um, expect her to want to be involved in something that was so much more, I imagine, traumatic and, and, and also just a really radically different experience than the one I had. Um, and it's up to her whether or not she wants to tell her story and in what way, and I can't take ownership of that. And that's and and that immediately made the story change from this isn't going to be a reported story about a crime that happened because if I can't kind of be the vessel to tell the victim's story, you know, and she's not interested in sharing that, then then I need to be as respectful of her privacy and also find what the story is for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's probably a million more really interesting stories from women who are Gary's girls, and I encourage them all to share their stories if they want to. (laughs) I I recently had breakfast with a friend, one of Gary's girls, who said that, and she had been in one of the cars like a week before this happened, felt it almost could have happened to her, but didn't. Uh She said she passed the daughter on the street, and even though they knew each other really, really well, a year later, they couldn't even look at each other because they just couldn't acknowledge and sort of bring all that back up again. Yeah. So anyway, I, uh, I if you ran into the daughter now, would you? What would would you leave it be? Kind of or give her? Are you giving her the book? Or I I I would I would love to I I would love to thank her. Um, there's. Uh, at the in the acknowledgments part of the book, I thank the mother and the daughter and, and kind of recognize that they really are the heroes of this of this larger story and um, their connection, the fact that they listened to each other um, and that they saved each other's lives from this predator and ultimately saved the lives potentially of so many other victims. Um, I connected with the mother um and she's a she's a great writer as and has published many books so I reached out to her she asked for a galley copy and uh I was very nervous to send it to her and she wrote me a a beautiful response that she really enjoyed the book and that meant the world to me um I've reached out to her since and just also wanted to let her know if she ever wants to speak on anything, on any subject. Um, I would love to, you know, help share a platform with her because she can speak to this in a way that I can't. Um, and she's just a very brilliant woman. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should um, just set the stage a little more of yes. what happened um, before I keep going with this line of questioning. Um, so Gary was a super popular Manhattan tennis coach who um, had lots of girls who he became very close with them and their families. Um, and then it was a huge shock when, um, you know, 
just out of the blue, seemingly, um, he attempted to abduct... What can I say? This is okay. Attempted to, and it's all in the news, but attempted to abduct one of the girls and how the daughter and the mother, that's who we're talking about, and how they responded, and how he called this girl his favorite. That's right. right. So in the end, he had, he had a bunch of favorites all throughout his life, and then this one girl called the daughter was his favorite. So my question, long-winded, is to say, was there ever any part of you that was disappointed, given your relationship, your close relationship with him, and your prior history of these obsessions, sort of, um, were you ever disappointed in some maybe subconscious way not to have been chosen as the yeah, favorite? Absolutely. That was that was what compelled me to to actually dig into this story because if I was if I was going to write about this in a really honest way from my perspective, then I'd have to kind of throw myself under the bus a little bit and and examine what what that reaction at 14 was about. I mean, my, yeah, my, my initial reaction was A, to defend him after, um, I can set the stage a little more, is that he, he attempted to abduct one of his students who had let him, had actually fired him uh, in the months prior because he was making her uncomfortable and, you know, was paying too much attention to her in ways that, were inappropriate, and uh, and he f- months later followed her and her mother up to a tournament and tr- tried to abduct her, and he had outfitted this cabin in the woods with restraints and you know seeming plans to keep her there, um, and this all came out. Uh, in the news, in in tabloid headlines from the New York Post, the Daily News, People Magazine, Geraldo, Mori Povich, A Current Affair. Um, for about a month, it was it was the big story, um, and certainly, if you were one of his students or went to the school where he taught, you know there were reporters everywhere asking questions of students, and uh, we were, you know, I think. I certainly was advised, um, and, the, and the vibe was not to talk to reporters, um, in part to protect the community, and in part because, you know, you never know how your words are going to be um, used. At the time, there was no Twitter. There was no um, Facebook. There was no platform for a teenage girl to be like, this is how I feel in this moment, and let's talk about it. Um, it was... It was more of a sensationalism and then silence. Um, so, so my reaction was, I, I, I knew he had done a really bad thing and that he was all over the press. And I wanted, I felt protective of him because I felt close to him, and I felt like, well, you know, I was in this car with him a few weeks before. And he was opening up to me. Why didn't he drive off then? And and to some degree of just like, well, why not me? I did not understand, and still to this day don't understand what it means to be um, a survivor of that kind of trauma. And you know, and that is a privilege that I have. Um, you know, so I think I you know I I did not understand what you know it would mean to be abducted. Um, but he, 
he had this power over me and I think some other students as, you know, someone who who could deem you worthy or not worthy. And, and it was actually a manipulative tool and, and a, a grooming tool um, that he employed for, for years, I discovered, of like he would like to pit girls against each other and then pick his favorite and then he would decide he had a different favorite and it would, you know, and, and, and his opinion mattered so much and became so important, especially, you know, in all girls camps where he taught um, or among the small all girls groups where he taught that that um, he he used that authority that he had to control us, I think, to some extent, whether he was conscious of it or not. Um, side note, to this day, I, I did get some uh, kind of comments from a few people that I had either reached out to or that people had, had heard I was writing this book and kind of contacted me and wanted, were suspicious of how many years I played with him. They were like, how long did you know him and how often did you play with him? And I said, not long, you know, a year and um, twice a week. You know, in retrospect of like the whole point was that like I wasn't his favorite. He had, this was how he was working this, these young women. Um, but there still seems to be in this, this kind of Gary's girl's thing where some people feel like, well, I knew him better. I played with him longer. And I'm, you know, perhaps there's a subtext of something happened or perhaps there is still this like hold that he has on us where we're competing for, you know, who, you know, his affection in a way, you know, in a subconscious way. I think though that to say that you don't feel something that happens to someone to measure it only in the time spent is is not the way it works with emotion. And when you think about like people you've lost, maybe maybe you didn't spend that much time, but they affect you really deeply. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's like who is someone else to come in and judge your relationship based on hours? And so anyway, forget them. I have to say that. Absolutely, and and you know, and like the, I I want to hear their stories. I mean, I think the thing that we learned from the Me Too movement too is just like solidarity. <laughs> right. Of just like. We are, you know, we all have different stories and we need to listen to each other's stories and, and elevate each other's stories and support each other um, as opposed to, you know, judging or being threatened right. by each other's stories, you know? Yeah. And one thing I was wondering about, you spent a lot of time in the book talking about your own relationship with your mom, which I loved as any, you know, it just so perfectly captured so many elements of that mother-daughter relationship, especially the... The turtleneck banana public sweater scene was like so perfect. <laughs> oh my gosh, it could have been. I could have been in that fitting room with my mother at times. Um, but your mom did, um, you know, like many moms at the time, willingly let you go off with Gary. Gary would drive you to lessons, take mm-hmm. you out to dinner, spend all this time, give you lessons for free. Mm-hmm. Um, another Gary's girl I was talking to was like, you know, I would never let my teenage daughter now go off to dinner with some 50-year-old man. Mm-hmm. Do you think the times were different then? Do you think um, that gen- we were all just more trusting? 
was it you know the mom these moms in particular your mom do you ever blame your mom like <laughs> I might my I first wanted to blame my mom that was so easy and uh she's very used to me getting mad at her for no reason so <laughs> um but uh no I mean my mom is the best she helped me with this book enormously and is the most fascinating person I have ever met in my life um but uh but yeah, I, I actually, I mean, I think kind of part of the aspect of this book that's interesting in in the fact that it is this incredibly privileged and protected community, um, you know, I mean, if it can happen in these places where these mothers are so involved in these children's lives and that everyone is so vetted. I mean, we were the luckiest girls in the freaking world in that way. You know, if like, if it can happen there, it's happening all over the place. You know, I mean, it, we had all the, the privilege, the education, the protection you could possibly get. Um, so I don't think, I don't think the finger can be pointed in that way. I do think there's much more opportunity for um, open dialogue now just because of the internet. Um, what we learn and f in the book and and in the research that I did is that um, Gary had a history of stalking children and had actually been arrested five years before he was my instructor and also, you know, a coach at your school and, you know, kind of a celebrated, uh, award-winning teen girl coach. So he was arrested for stalking two kids, three kids, on the street as they walked to school every day, um, following them with a camera dressed in a, a black leather mask. Um, and because there were no, uh, be, there really weren't stringent stalking laws at the time, and it wasn't a felony to stalk a child, um, he... He got off. Um, he had to see a, a therapist for six months, and then his case was dismissed. So there was nothing on his record. Uh, reportedly, one of the mothers of the stalked children uh, contacted parents of his students and schools, the private schools, uh, when Gary started to kind of be a figure on the scene. And she claimed to the New York Daily News at the time that her, her concerns were ignored. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the real situation was. I find it very hard to believe that the school or any of the parents would have dismissed those concerns. I think that there just wasn't as strong of like a network. There weren't background checks the way that we have them now. It wasn't as mandated. Um, the conversations that we're having now, even, you know, with respect to Larry Nasser um, and other, you know, Sandusky, were not conversations we were having at the time. I mean, stalking wasn't really a thing. Um, and uh, certainly, like, there were coaches and educators that were um, nefarious and crossing many lines. And we know that even from what's happening with Horse Man and Choate. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but those revelations hadn't come out yet. So I guess it was in part the time. And, and that world was really, really protective of itself. You know, it was, it was, it was, there was a time, these were people that, 
were used to being written about in the press and were very powerful and wanted to um, con- control what was written about them. I, I think not necessarily mothers or parents individually, but kind of that that scope of that world. I love how you explained how they were called private schools for a reason, because yeah. we're supposed to keep everything private, and how you had all these mixed emotions about even sharing what had happened. That's right. I was thinking this as I was, like, posting something on Facebook yesterday, and I'm like, am I really being private? I don't know. I think <laughs> I, <laughs> I might have missed this whole thing. Um, uh, by the way, the thing you were saying about him stalking those boys... One of the technical things you did so brilliantly, I think, in the book is that in the beginning you set up that whole stage of him um, stalking the boys, but you never say his name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I read almost all the book out loud to my husband. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the point at the end, um, it was when he realized that the, the stalker in the beginning was actually Gary, because you never are so, op- you, you don't like spell that out. It's implied, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it could be anybody. It could have been good. the beginning of any worked. history. Anyway, so it was. I'm a, glad that works. It was a good, was it was a good little, uh, little thing. Anyway. <laughs> Um, and another technical question is, mm-hmm. how do you remember so much? I mean, you mm-hmm. have captured every little bit of, like, our shared time and place childhood <laughs> from, I mean, the radio to the tote bags to the invitations to the parties to the places. I mean, how did you did you research it? Do you have an insane memory? Um, I, think, I think memory is a muscle and, like, my muscle got really strong when I was writing this book. It started, you know, with just a couple of memories and then and then researching, like, what are the songs in 92 to 93? What are the, like, clothing, you know, looking at pictures, reading articles, and then, you know, I mean, there was an article in 96 in The New Yorker about these boots that, prep school girls used to wear and so that kind of was a moment that triggered me and then by the time I got to the middle of the book I had I was just so in the zone that my memories it was like I opened I popped a blood vessel and like the memories of like thing how it smelled in the kitchen in my apartment growing up and you know what my mother's fingernails looked like and you know, every little thing, I, I, like, tapped into that. But it took a while to, like, really tap into those memories. But the more I did, the better, I think, the the clearer the writing became. So that was the fun part. <laughs> I was kind of annoyed at your friend Sarah in the book when she says that you misremembered, uh, you know, when you went to the Crane Club, ninth or 10th grade. And I was like, oh, my gosh, come on. You remember so much other stuff. Give her a break. Yeah, but I loved that she said that, and I kept that in there because, because I also kind of wanted it to be like, I'm an unreliable narrator. Like, this is my memory, but, like, hers might be different, and who's to say, you know, that anyone's right or wrong. Like, part of this book is, like, facts that I collected, and yet, like, the core of it, and I think probably the the truer parts or the parts that have like more of a like larger understanding of how something like this could happen hopefully it are the ones that are based on my impressions and memories and like the visceral feelings as opposed to the straight facts um that was my hope (laughs) so a friend of mine also talking about gary was saying how um uh you know at the time she had to believe that 
he went off the rails, that he was a nice, normal guy, Mm -hmm. mostly, and just had some sort of break, and that had she not been able to convince herself of this, she would never have been able to trust another man forever. Mm -hmm. Like, she would never have gotten married. Everything would have just crumbled. So that's the story she immediately told herself, and she's afraid to read the book to see if that myth kind of... Oh my gosh. Wait, I. The reading. So. (laughs) I wish I talked to her. I'm just like, I'm so curious. Like, that's actually a really profound thing to feel that, like, this guy, in some ways, I mean, because he was this formative adult male in so many of our lives, and that. That, that coaching relationship, which is that fine line between being, like, an authority figure and a friend, um, and that he could he could have so much influence, even in death, yeah. on her, ro- her romantic life and choices. Oh, I really respect her for being so honest about it. Do you, it. do you think that, Gary, it's, from the way you wrote it, it sounded like the very end, the last couple weeks, there yeah. was a huge market change in him. Yeah. But do you feel like he went off the rails, or do you feel like there's this whole thing, given all the evidence over time, has, was sort of percolating? I mean, I'm, I'm fairly certain that he was a child stalker um, for years, for years and years. Um, and uh, I, I question what else he did. Um, I found no evidence, and, and police at the time found no evidence um, that he um, assaulted or uh, molested anyone beyond the uh, attack and attempted abduction, but these were different times where people weren't uh, encouraged or, or given a platform and a safe platform to share these this kind of information or even understand and process what it might mean to be um, abused by a, an authority figure. Um, I th- uh, My impression certainly is that he had a long history of this. I mean, I did find, according to one of his high school friends, he had a history of violence against women in high school. Um, So the idea that he snapped, I don't think is the case. But but I do think that the being fired um, was this kind of breaking point for him that made him kind of step completely over. I think he he was straddling these two worlds for a while, and I think when he was fired in the last several months leading up to his attack, he he decided to step into the dark side completely. Um, there's one line you wrote that I, I just want to read. You had um, talked about a boy you had met, how your mother was listening to your call with him, and... It turns out he thought you were someone else, mm-hmm. which was so crushing the way you told it. I'm not even going to read it. I like, can't even bear to read it out loud, what exactly he said. Um, although I will say that his comment about your height is now like offensive to me because, <laughs> honestly, when you walked in, I thought you were going to be like so – you talk so much about how short you are. and you're, I mean, we're like the same height. This is terrible. And I'm like, should I feel this bad about myself now? Like your self-image is so horrible. Like you're oh, this beautiful, normal-sized person. And in the book, you make yourself out to be like a monster. Monster, so well, it is that that's how funny. You felt at the time, it's how I felt. It's just like it is that thing where you know I look at pictures of myself then, and I'm like, oh, you poor fucking deer! Like you were so sorry. It's okay, <laughs> but, but like you poor deer, like you didn't realize that you were fine. But I think 
the, at the time, and I'm sure girls still experience this today, and part of it's just patriarchy, sexism, um, you know, internalized sexism, which is, you know, that the labels, the physical labels that you're given, especially, you know, when you're in this, like, in-between phase, become your identity, and you have to have ownership over them, and they're, they're kind of like the, uh, the inadequacies you have to constantly be uh, fielding and trying to improve, you know, I mean, it was, for me, it, at the time, it was my, I was too short, and I had curly hair and a big nose, and these were things that had to be fixed um, to make, and, and really, it was told to me in the context of, you know, to have a better life, you know, which is now, I mean, <laughs> and, and I would say- ne- never impart that to a, <laughs> to a teenage girl. I mean, we know better. But yeah, at the time, that was really the message of like, you, you know, you're, you could be beautiful and it's important to be beautiful. Um, we could just have to fix these few things about you. <laughs> Um, th- you right here, when, when you realized he was asking about your friend and not you, you said, worse than knowing you're unlovable is believing momentarily that you are not. Yeah. I thought that was so, <laughs> like, poignant and um, also spoke to the whole thing with Gary that for a minute you feel really special with him and then you don't all of a sudden. Um, now that all this time has gone by and the book has come out and you've had more time to think about him, do you find yourself missing Gary? Uh, less, less so. I missed him while I was writing it at the beginning and researching it at the beginning. And then later in the, in the book, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I started having really bad dreams about him and even kind of did some physical research where I went to his hometown I went upstate and and I, I, I got a little spooked by him. Um, I, could, I couldn't tell if I was intentionally spooking myself out. Um, I, I think about him in the context of, you know, if anyone would like to have some kind of coverage or be resurrected in some public manner, it's him. And that mm. both kind of, like, makes me, like, ha- like... I don't know. It makes me a little angry at him. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit just like, no, you don't get this. You know, this is, this is not about you, even though it is about him. Um, yeah, so I have a complicated relationship in my head with Gary where, you know, I mean, part of what drove me to this story was that I, f- for many years as an adult, even felt this parallel to him. I, you know, this kind of I, empathy for what I imagined was this, like, profound loneliness that um, does not excuse his actions and does not make any of it okay, but, you know, he seemed like partially a product of his environment and his, you know, his self-esteem and, and these con- these kind of, like, gender-fixed ideas and expectations that he didn't live up to, Um and and so that and, and that was the kind of inroad in terms of like creating imagining what might have been uh, going through his mind his need for these these emotional connections and the conflation of fatherhood romance captor and protector you know 
This is amazing. So what what is next for you? What are you going to write another book? I hope. Yeah. You, what what are you I, thinking? I really want to. I really want to fiction. <laughs> I am so dead set on writing fiction because this was hard. This was this was hard nonfiction and really exposing. Less of exposing myself, um, but my my parents, mm-hmm. who I adore, I I just I was so nervous that, you know, and still I'm nervous that they would be, you know, received in not a positive light, um, because they weren't perfect and they weren't, and yet they're the best parents I could have ever asked for. So you know, kind of exposing them, my sister, people that were friends in high school that I don't speak to anymore that, you know, might come across this and might, you know, feel weird about being in a book. I mean, it's a big responsibility and you want to tell the truth and yet you want to tell your truth, which might be different from their truth. And, and so it was really difficult to navigate and I'm glad I did it, but I really want to, to take true events and let them inspire things that I can then kind of take more ownership of um, in terms of like manipulating the narrative. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. And you mentioned that now you fell in love again, which is a great ending to anybody who's read the book and is so rooting for you. It just, not that that's the be all and all, but it's a nice thing to have at the end of the, of the story. You, you know, I feel really conflicted about it, actually. I'm just like, yeah, I met this, I met this person who, uh, I was, I really was in this state after I finished the book where I was just like, I I own this. I own being this weird single, not that it's weird to be single, but just like a lone loving person who has obsessions and is is also very similar to the person I was at 14. I own it now. I love it. Why did I expect to be a completely different person when I grew up? Like, what if I just loved who I have always been and embraced it? And part of that embracing that was kind of being someone who's like happily alone and um you know has wonderful friends and has awesome romantic experiences but doesn't you know have this conventional uh romantic setup and then I met this guy on (laughs) tinder you know just like whatever and then we uh and I just love him, and he's an artist. He's a gifted artist, um, Tim Maxwell. And uh, and I love him, and we got engaged. And no. Yeah, like... Congratulations. Thanks, but I, like, haven't told a lot of people, and it's just, like, this... Now you have. Now I have. <laughs> there it is. Of just, like, he's great, and I love him, but I feel like... I feel a little bit like I... I it's just, like, I don't want... To, the engagement to be like and that's a happy ending because like the happy ending was me alone you know figuring stuff out I just happened to meet this person that I like hanging out with now for a while you know but like but like hopefully the core of me as an independent person will always be there and no man, (laughs) very good on no man as wonderful as they can be will validate my success. It's my, that's my soapbox. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Oh, thank you so much for t- taking the time to do this and oh. chatting about your book and everything. And thank you. I'm honored. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Viper. Oh, you're the best. 